London this morning, uh, London, England, not Ontario, and uh, <laughs> I just got back a few hours ago. Uh, we had a group of students from New Jersey and New York, Rutgers, Columbia, and NYU, 50 students took them to London for a week, and uh, it was uh, quite an amazing, amazing experience, which they're still experiencing. Anyway, the, uh, the subject this evening is the, uh, the land of Israel. And uh, it's a question which is coming up. We are bombarded with media, uh, propaganda. Uh, we are bombarded with biased reports, uh, just horrific lies, one after the other, continuously. Uh, they come from the print, from television, from, uh, from all over the place. And what I'd like to do is to try to deal uh, with some of the issues surrounding the land of Israel. Uh, Article 22 of the Palestine National Covenant, which is the central uh, document of the Palestinian people, was written in 1964 uh, and uh, amended in 68, and uh, is still, the majority of it, the bulk of it, is still something which is held as almost sacred by the Palestinians, says that claims of religious or historic ties of the Jews to Israel are incompatible with the facts of history. Claims of religious or historic ties of the Jews to Israel are incompatible with the facts of history. That is their claim. They say, they are telling us the Jews have no connection to Israel. They actually don't refer to it as Israel, they refer to it as Palestine. We'll talk about that perhaps in a different class. But uh, our, we have no connection as a people, no connection as a religion to Israel. What I'd like to do is perhaps set the record straight, at least on that. First of all, the centrality of Israel in Judaism. If we look at the history of the Jewish people, uh, most of it being in the Torah, Prophets and Writings, the Tanakh, Jewish Bible, we look back, the first words of God to the first Jew with the words, Lech Lecha, go to the land of Israel. God tells Abraham, go to Israel. First thing he tells him. Abraham goes to Israel, and he travels around Israel. He settles in Be'er Sheva. He also purchases property to bury his wife, Sarah, first Jewish burial, in a place called Hebron. He paid 400, one of the oldest recorded purchases of land, in the world, in world history. One of the oldest recorded purchases of land in very, very great detail. He pays 400 shekel. Now you'll say, well, 400 shekel, the Talmud says, was an exorbitant price. How do we know it was an exorbitant price? Uh, if in the Code of Hammurabi, which is a uh, text of Sumerian code of law at the time, it tells us that the Sumerian average worker in the region earned five shekel a year. So Abraham paid 400 shekel for his wife's burial plot. This is Manhattan prices, right? And this is, mind you, it's worth a heck of a lot more than Manhattan, but that's what he paid, 400 shekel. So in the city of Hebron, the burial place of Sarah, the burial place of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, and Leah, our patriarchs and matriarchs, buried there in the city of Hebron. Abraham toured the whole land of Israel and settled there. Isaac, his son, did not leave the land of Israel at all. And Jacob, his son Joseph, was of course sold to Egypt. In Israel, I remember I was in, uh, doing guard duty uh, with a, um, uh, in the Israeli army with a Russian soldier uh, by the name of Yosef, Joseph. 
And we're standing on the guard tower in a place called the Dotan. Dotan. And he says to me, standing there smoothing, which is what we did most of the time when we were guarding, uh, and uh, he looks at me and he says, uh, what connection do we have to this place, Dotan? And I said, your name's Yosef? He said, yeah. I said, who, you know who you're named after? He said, I don't know. I said, probably after a great-grandfather, something like that. He is ultimately named after Yosef, Joseph of the Bible. Now, Joseph of the Bible, I said, you know, he began the odyssey of the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people were formed in the crucible of Egypt. That's where we became a nation. Through the exodus in Egypt, the exile in Egypt, and the exodus, we became a nation. The way we got down to Egypt was the brothers of Joseph sold into Egypt. He said, okay, all right. Maybe he saw the rock opera or something, I don't know, or read the book. Right, so he says, we were sold to So I said, I asked him, do you know where Joseph was sold? The place where he was when he was sold to Egypt. So if you look in the Torah, anyone know? Anyone know? If you look in the Bible, it tells us, Joseph was sold to Egypt in a place called Dotan. The very place where our army base was, I said, is the place where Joseph was sold to Egypt. It says he was in Dotan. So I said, so, A... Someone called Joseph should not be asking what connection we have to this place. Because your ancestor was sold to Egypt right here. In fact, the Arabs in the region, there's a pit right near there, which the Arabs have a tradition as being called the pit of Joseph. Pit of Joseph. And I said to him also, when Joseph, when the Jews went to Egypt, interesting, when Joseph died, he was not buried. He was not buried. They embalmed his body, and it says they placed it in a coffin in Egypt. Why was he not buried? He wanted to be sure that the Jews would not bury him in Egypt. He wanted to be sure that when the Jews came out of Egypt, which he was confident they would eventually, they'd take his coffin to Israel and they'd bury him in the land of Israel, his homeland. And that's what they did. When the Jews came into Israel in approximately 1270 BCE, Joshua bought the burial plot of Joseph in a place called Shem, and he buried him in Shem. And I pointed out to my modern-day Yosef, I pointed out to him that Shem five kilometers from where we are guarding is the burial place of your ancestor Joseph. I said, in addition, by the way, that burial place of Joseph was destroyed by the Palestinians in the past few months, utterly destroyed, burnt down, taken apart piece by piece. And I said to him, in addition, later on, when the kingdom of Israel was divided into the northern and the southern kingdom, and the kings of the northern kingdom were anointed by a prophet by the name of Achia Ashiloni, those kings were descended from... He says, I know, I know, Joseph. I said, correct. Right? He was catching on by this time. Right? And I said, do you know where they were anointed? He said, let me guess, in the dining room of the base? I said, no. Right? But just outside the city of Shrem, six kilometers from here. So I said, I said, you are connected to this place in many, many different ways that you don't know. But Jewish history is bound with the land of Israel. We are... The, the very soil of Israel is in our souls. And I said, you know, we go a little further in history. The Jews, after entering Israel, burying Joseph there, entering Israel, they lived in Israel for 440 years as a, as a uh, independent tribe, each tribe having its own army, own government, but basically being united under one, under leaders who would bring them together with external threats. And it was about 400 years after the Jews got into Israel, they got a king. King Saul first, then King David. King David, of course, together with Samuel the prophet, chose Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Interesting, just as parenthetically, Samuel the prophet, why do you need a prophet to choose Jerusalem as the capital? The answer is they didn't have a tourism ministry then. 
There were no signs in English, Hebrew, and Arabic pointing to the, this is the place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. This is the place of this happened. There was nothing like that. You needed a prophet to tell you this is the mountain. And so they chose Jerusalem. By the way, Samuel the prophet, the York site, the anniversary of his death, is the 28th day of ER, the Code of Jewish Law says. Anyone, anyone familiar with that date, 28th of ER? 28th of ER, 1967? Hint? Is when the, is when the, in the Six Day War, Jerusalem came back into the hands of the descendants of Samuel and David. Right? On the York site, the anniversary of the death of Samuel the prophet, who anointed the first kings and who chose Jerusalem as the capital, is when Jerusalem came back into our hands. And so, I said, after the, uh, King David establishes the capital, King, and he buys the site of the temple from Arvana the Jebusite, he buys it from the Jebusites, and then his son King Solomon builds a temple. That temple lasted for 410 years. 410 years. The Assyrians besieged Jerusalem and the Jews stayed there and they built the broad wall under the reign of Hezekiah. You can still see it in the old city of Jerusalem. The broad wall, which they built within nine months hearing the Assyrian army coming and Jerusalem survived that. And about a hundred years later, the Babylonians, flavor of the month at that time, came and invaded Israel and destroyed the temple and exiled the Jews to Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And that's where the whole Purim story happened. Iraq, Iran... Babylon and Persia. And that's where the Jews made the oath. What oath do the Jews make there? <coughs> if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its cunning. And if I do not raise you over all my joy, then let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. The Jews took an oath that they would never ever forget Jerusalem. And that's why under a chuppah, at a Jewish wedding, what does the groom do? He breaks a glass. This is not to signal the band to play. This is not the last time he gets to put his foot down. <laughs> it is not the idea, this is the last time he gets to break a glass without being yelled at. Right? Rather, this is to break something of some value that at the height of our joy, at the wedding day, we indicate the fact that Jerusalem is not complete. Jerusalem is not completely ours. Jerusalem has problems. Jerusalem, the temple's destroyed. We have to remember that. We're fulfilling that oath. In the Purim story, you're probably all familiar with it so soon after Purim, Mordechai, the hero of the Purim story, is called Ish Yemini. Anyone know what Yemini means? Yemini. Right-handed. It could mean from the tribe of Benjamin. Right? Although it's in Hebrew, Yemini can mean the tribe of Benjamin. It can also mean right-handed. I actually have a friend who's in the Israeli army whose Hebrew was almost non-existent. Uh, and he was doing grenade practice, which you basically run down through these uh, sandbag, sandbag corridor type things. There's an officer there with a crate of grenades. And as you run down there, he says to you, Yumini. He asks you if you're right-handed or not, because he doesn't want you to, he doesn't want you to be juggling around with a grenade. You know what I mean? They're like, no, putting your left hand on. Actually, your left. So he says to my friend, says, Yumini. Now my friend thought, he was asking if he's Yemenite. Which he thought was a strange thing to ask when he's giving me a grenade. Am I Yemenite? Is that a different custom in throwing him? I don't know. So my friend says, Law. He says, Canada. <laughs> so the officer looks at him and he says, Yeah, me and me. And my friend says, Ashkenazi. <laughs> and he's like, What type of nutcase is this? So finally they got through, he said in English, right handed. But Mordechai 
was called, right, one interpretation, Yemeni, he was the one with the right hand. Why? Because so many Jews then had lost hope of returning to Israel. And many Jews had not raised Jerusalem over all their joy. Except for Mordechai, who did. So Mordechai was called, described as right-handed. Because his right hand had not lost its skill, had not lost its cunning. So the Jews made that oath. And that's also where prophetically King David described the Jews standing, sitting by the rivers. I'm sure you're all familiar with this. By the rivers of Babylon. You know the song, by the rivers of Babylon, right? So by the rivers of Babylon, we wept, we sat down, we remembered Zion, etc. And it didn't stop there. Seventy years after the temple was destroyed, the Jews came back to Israel. Not all of them, but a few hundred thousand Jews came back under Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. And as described in the book of Nehemiah with a trowel in one hand to build and a sword in the other hand to defend themselves. A very modern image, unfortunately, where we're building and defending both simultaneously. And they rebuilt the temple rebuilt the Jewish kingdom, and we had an independent state for another 420 years. 420 years. During that time, the Greeks invaded, and the Greeks tried to bring Greek culture to Israel. They tried to turn Israel into a Greek colony. They tried to replace Kerem wine with Uzo, herring with calamari, <laughs> falafel with gyros and stuff like that, suvlaki, right? But they did not succeed because the Maccabees drove them out, and they established the Jewish kingdom in Israel for another 200 years. So think about it. There was an independent Jewish state in Israel existing for approximately 1,200 years. 1,200 years. Jewish self-rule, Jewish government, Jewish court in the land of Israel. Seven-year gap when we were in Babylon, but we didn't forget it then. We came back. 1,200 years. And Jerusalem was its capital for that time for about 850 of those years. And when the Romans came and exiled us to New Jersey and other places and destroyed the second temple, the Jews still did not forget Jerusalem. Jews still tried to live there. And the Romans destroyed the temple. They plowed over the side of the temple and renamed Jerusalem Aliyah Kapitolina. That seems to be a repeated thing. The Arabs called Jerusalem Al-Quds destroying Jewish sites on the Temple Mount, which they're regularly doing. And by the way, this is not something which is reported only in the Israeli press. I get regularly Biblical Archaeology Review. Biblical Archaeology Review, the past three or four issues, has been, they've been screaming and crying about the destruction of Jewish archaeological sites in Israel by the Palestinians. They want to obliterate any evidence of the Jewish presence of that 1,200 years of Jewish statehood, independence and settlement in Israel. Those 850 years where Jerusalem was the capital, they want to do what the Romans did. And the Romans plowed it over and they built Aliyah Capitolina. There's a remnant of Aliyah Capitolina left. In the old city, there's a place called the Cardo. Anyone been there? Cardo is an old Roman mall, strip mall. Like, it's like New Jersey, right? This old Roman mall. And, but the Cardo now has got Jewish souvenir stores. Right, and I've seen my kids rollerblading down the Cardo with yarmulkes in hand, right, and uh, they should be on their head, but they're usually in their hand, rollerblading down the Cardo, and I get a great kick out of that, because the Romans are gone. The only remnant of the Roman occupation is archaeological sites and kosher pizza in Israel. Otherwise, right, you've got Jewish kids rollerblading down the Cardo. So, again and again, throughout history, all the prophets either prophesied about Israel or in Israel. 
without exception. About Israel, this is Rabbi Huda Levi in the Kuzari says. So that's the history, history. And the Jews continuously, right, tried to have, a, have, have some presence in Israel despite and against all odds. When the Roman Empire became Christian, Constantine forbade Jews from living in Jerusalem, so Jews lived in other places in Israel. When the Crusaders came in, they burnt the Jews who were living in Jerusalem. And when the Saracens came in, they let the Jews back into Jerusalem. That was under the Salah al-Den, Salatin, conquered Israel from the Crusaders, let the Jews back into Jerusalem. That was probably based on the advice of his physician. You know who Salah al-Den's physician, the great Salatin's physician was? Could get, right? Maimonides, right? Correct. And Maimonides probably advised him, take two of these in the morning and let the Jews back in Jerusalem. (laughs) And he did. And that's as far as the history goes, but that's obviously not it. We can't go through the whole history tonight, but history of the Jews has been the history of our connection and severance, exile and return to the land of Israel. And there has been no nation which has returned twice to a land that it was exiled from thousands of years ago. It's, an, it's absolutely miraculous, beyond imagination. Not the fact, just the fact that we returned twice is incredible enough, but the fact that it was predicted makes it even more incredible. And the fact that we return and established say three years after the Holocaust is, in my mind, something unbelievable, something miraculous. That's the history, the spiritual qualities. There are 613 commandments in the Torah. Out of those commandments, today, we are only obligated in 270. 270. Less than half of the commandments of the Torah are obligatory upon us. Why is that? The answer is, because the majority of Jews are not in Israel. We don't have the full infrastructure of Jewish law in Israel. So out of the entire Torah, all of Judaism, less than 50% of it is directly applicable today. That's because they're directly connected to the land of Israel. Nachmanides points out that even those commandments which are not directly related to the land of Israel, nevertheless, when they're done in Israel, have a deeper... Israel is a place of spiritual intensity. Anyone who's been to Israel knows that Israel is an intense... It's an intense place. There's no such thing as a calm, calm, detached discussion. No one's detached. Right? You don't have a cocktail party in Israel where you can stand there and just go, oh, so you voted for this. No, man. Is like, what? You know, that's, that's what it's going to be like. The gym I used to go to in Jerusalem, they used to only allow MTV on the television screens in front of the, uh, in front of the uh, running machines. Why? I asked, the, uh, I asked the owner of the gym, a good friend of mine, I said, David, why do you only allow MTV on the television? So he said, look, he said, this is Israel. We have anything with any any content more serious than MTV, we're going to have arguments in the gym. And as I am bars all over the place, we don't have arguments in the gym. <laughs> he says, all we've got is MTV, it's nice and calm. He said, and the second reason also is, as you watch MTV, you lose weight. Because it destroys neurons in your brain. <laughs> so actually, your weight goes down subtly. <laughs> but it, but so, so the spiritual quality of Israel is that the commandments themselves have an intensity. Eliyahu Desla, one of the great philosophers and ethicists of Judaism last century taught at great yeshivas in Europe. He taught at Gateshead Yeshiva in England. And later on he moved to Israel. And he says, in his life of teaching in the greatest academies of Jewish learning in Europe and in England, he never saw such rapid progress in the study and understanding of Torah as he saw in the land of Israel. Is what he writes in the letter. 
And he says there's no question this is because of the spiritual magnifying powers of the land of Israel. Prophecy. Israel grows better prophets with a PH. Truth is, it's also true now in the high-tech industry with an F. But, but, but again, it grows better prophets. Prophecy connected to the land of Israel. All the prophets, either started their prophecy in Israel prophesied, in Israel prophesied, about Israel, about the return to Israel, there's connection to Israel. It's type of like an animal which is taken out of its native environment does not thrive. Never, when I see poor koalas and kangaroos right, sitting in some drizzly rain in New Jersey or New York, right, not enjoying the beautiful sun of Bondi Beach, right, the fresh eucalyptus leaves of Australia, right, it's, it, it really it wrenches that. It's just terrible. It's just difficult for me to go to zoos in the United States. It's difficult, right? Uh, but, you know, that's because they're out of their native environment. The Jewish soul, the native environment of the Jewish soul is the land of Israel. And that soul thrives best in the land of Israel. So the spiritual qualities of Israel are something which are intrinsically tied to the Torah, tied to the commandments, tied to the whole infrastructure of Jewish law. Spiritually, we are told, pray to God, what, what direction do we face? Jews all over the world, on the way to England last Sunday, we were standing on the plane. We had a minion on the plane, right? It was it was JFK to London. There was there was at least uh, well, we had 50 Jews in our group. So there, you know, then there was others as well. But uh, you know, we we're all everyone standing there trying to figure out which way to face, right? You know, so that's how it is. Great face. Well, we're heading towards England. So that means we're heading more or less towards Israel, right? From America, we're heading to like, no, because that might be that's assuming that you're not doing great circle navigations. If you know anything about how airplanes go, they go through great circle navigation. You also have to take into account the Coriolis effect, which is the rotation of the Earth at a different uh, rate in the atmosphere, etc., etc. So I said, look, forget it. Just face the most comfortable direction so we're not going to fall over, and let's pray that way. <laughs> but strictly speaking, strictly speaking, you face Israel. Synagogues all over the world face Israel. That's what they do. And when you're in Israel, which direction do you face? Face Jerusalem. When you're in Jerusalem, you face the Western Wall. When you're at the Western Wall, you face the Holy of Holies. If you'd be in the Holy of Holies, you'd face the Ark. But Jews all over the world, focus, there's a focus on Israel. So, spiritual qualities. Then we also have the purpose of Israel in terms of an artificial environment. That's to say, the man-made environment. You see, we believe that the purpose of the Jewish people is to bring Jewish values, monotheism, and ethics to the world. But we do not do that by proselytization or missionary work. We don't parachute into the African bush with Talmud, right? Say, here we're here, right? That's not what we do. What we hope to do is to do it, teach by example. To teach by having a state which is imbued with Jewish values that is scientifically and economically and politically and militarily and in agriculture successful in every field. And, but every one of those fields is permeated with Judaism. That's the ideal. That's the ideal. That's what we hope that the state of Israel could still do that. Could still do that. It's not, hope is not lost, despite the fact that it's led by wasps, right, white Ashkenazi socialist paratroopers. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, right, the, the, we need a state, we need a country, because Judaism is not something which is kept in the synagogue. It's not something which is supposed to be in a bubble. Judaism is something which is supposed to permeate all aspects of life. You're supposed to be able to look at the agriculture in Israel and say, look at that. It's run according to the pattern of the, of the Torah. 
You're supposed to look at the military in Israel and see that. The truth is, even though Israel is a secular state, you can still have, there are still Jewish values that permeate many aspects of Israeli life. We get a lot of bad press. Israel gets a lot of bad press, right, from all sides. But I, I want to tell you, for having lived in Israel 20 years, bought an apartment there, served in the army there, had four children there, right, uh, uh, there are many areas of life where Jewish values permeate. I'll give you one example. I saw in the army magazine called Bamachane many years ago. The uh, uh, member of the Argentinian general staff visited Israel and was meeting with Ehud Barak, who at the time was the chief of staff of the Israeli army. And they're standing there in the picture together. Ehud Barak, highly decorated soldier, is wearing one, one row of ribbons, a couple of falafels, right, and paratrooper wings. And a rumpled fatigue, not very well pressed. And he's standing there. Next to him, the Argentinian general, there was not an inch of his body that was not covered with medals or braids or campaign ribbons. The guy was head to... I've never seen anything like it. Never seen anything like it. It was covered. The sun shone off this guy. It was like it was blinding to look at him. And they lost the Falklands. (laughs) <laughs> I just want to keep that in mind. Falkland, supposed to New Jersey, is still part of the Commonwealth, right? So, but there is, in his culture, there is a glorification of war. There is this macho, militaristic concept, right? And a lot of societies have that. Yesterday, yesterday I was in the Tower of London, right? And we went to the Royal Fusiliers Museum, we went to the armory in the Tower of London, and we had these, and you had these British generals, actually the uh, head of the uh, General uh, Jackson, I think his name is, not Stonewall, uh, but uh, as a general in the British Army, who's the head of the British forces in Bosnia. Uh, he was there yesterday. And he was, as a guy, he was covered in medals. But you don't see that in Israel. Not because people have not fought in many wars, unfortunately, tragically, we have. But it's not something which is glorified in. That's a Jewish value. We're not pacifists. We don't believe in turning the other cheek. The truth is probably no Christian does either. Right? But we don't believe in turning the other cheek. We're not pacifists. But on the other hand, we don't glorify in war. That's a Jewish value that permeates Israel. And indeed, unfortunately, most no, people have no idea, no idea because of all the press, of the restraint which has been shown by the Israeli army considering present situations. You're traveling at 60 miles an hour and someone throws a brick through your window. That's a lethal weapon. It's a lethal weapon. They're trying to kill you. If it would happen on the highway here, that person would be an attempted murderer. And someone's throwing a Molotov cocktail, etc., etc. Right. But again, we're going to talk about that in a later class. But if these certain values permeate, permeate Israel in that way. There's a sense in Israel also of there's a sense of, of, uh, of being part of one people, being part of the family. Being part of one family. There's a concern of one person for the other. Despite all the political divisions, I guarantee you, someone's lying on the pavement in New York, people will be saying, oh, excuse me. <laughs> in Israel, it will not happen. Israel will not happen. And that's also part of the environment that is created in Israel by the Jewish people. In addition, and finally, in terms of our centrality of Israel, also... It is a place where divine providence is more obvious than anywhere else. The presence of God can be felt in Israel more than anywhere else in the world. It's what we call Shechina. Shechina means the divine presence. Divine presence is a hard thing to understand because the Zohar tells us that Hashem is memale kol almin, which means 
that God fills all the world, there is no place devoid of godliness. If that's true, how can we then talk about the divine presence of the Western world? It's a contradiction. If God fills all time and place, how can we talk about any place which is presence of God? Does it make sense? Actually, I was giving this class in New York a number of months ago to a group from California, Jewish students from California. We were at a hotel in New York. As I was talking about the idea that God's presence fills all time and space, a truck stops outside the hotel. And the kids, half these university students all look around and say, hey, cool, right? It's this truck has on the side in gigantic letters, God. <laughs> Guaranteed overnight delivery. <laughs> now, this was divine providence. These students were from California, right? So New York students would be familiar with this. Or they would say, oh, yeah, Rabbi, how much did you pay this guy? Right. But they're all Californians. They oh, man, that's cool, dude. <laughs> so anyway, but again, God's presence does permeate all time and space equally. And because, but, so what do we mean when we say divine presence? What we mean is this. There are certain places where God allows us a greater perception of his presence than other places. Certainly, he fills all time and space equally. But is our perception of him equal in all times and places? No. I can perceive God at the Western Wall much more than I can perceive him in Wall Street. I can perceive God on a Sunday on a, on a Yom Kippur afternoon more than I can perceive him on Super Sunday. Right? There are times and places where God allows us a greater glimpse. That's what we mean by divine presence. The Shinnah, the divine presence, rests at the Western Wall means that the place where God's presence is more, can be felt, can be perceived by us. It's not the English mode. English people always carry cups, hold cups like this, with a little pinky out. You ever notice that? I think the reason for that is if a peasant comes into the room, you can do this. <laughs> so. Now. But that's the idea of divine providence. Uh, the Torah says, That God's eyes are on Israel from the beginning to the end of the year. There's a great degree of divine providence. David Ben-Gurion, first Prime Minister of the State of Israel. Actually, I just saw his name at the Tower of London yesterday. Because David Ben-Gurion was a lieutenant colonel in the Royal Fusiliers before 1948. He was actually in the British Army. And so he was demoted... After he was demoted from that rank, they had in the Royal Fusiliers Museum, famous people in the Fusiliers, right? It says he was demoted because he, his, his concepts of discipline did not exactly conform with the British, right? Which is actually, which is very interesting and very in keeping with the, uh, with the Jewish and Israeli character. But in any case, right, David Ben-Gurion used to say, if you live in Israel and you do not, and that's the divine providence in Israel. So the spiritual component to Israel, there's a state uh, uh, the, I mean, the state with a small s, a state uh, uh, of, of spirituality that exists in Israel, and there's indeed this this uh, this idea that this is the, our best bet for showing Jewish values to the world is through is through Israel. And so, when we talk about, or when the Palestinians say tie, religious or historic ties of the Jews to Palestine are incompatible with the facts of history. The only history I can think of they're referring to is Mel Brooks' History of the World. 
Right? But any other type of history, I think, to deny the religious connection of the Jews to Israel, and the connection of the Jews historically to Israel, is just... That's, that's the best word for it. That's the technical term for it is Meshugas. <laughs> now, what about our title to the land? It is true, we were not there for many years. Although there were always some Jews there, there's actually a small village in the north of Israel which called Pekiin. Sorry, yeah, Pekiin, in which there's a Jewish family there that can trace their settlement, or rather, settlement's a dirty word, unfortunately, today, right? Unless it's the settlements of America, like New Jersey displacing the American Indians, occupied New Jersey, Right, occupied Manhattan, uh, occupied Texas, occupied New Mexico, occupied California, etc., etc., occupied Portland, occupied Australia. Right, there's not a country in the world that's not occupied territory. I just want to tell you. Right, but in any case, right, the uh, the the settlement of Israel of this Pekin family dating back to dating back to pre-Roman period, pre-Roman continuous presence of Jews in Israel. But again. We were not there as a state. We were not there as a country. We've been all over the world. What about our title to Israel? So I'm not addressing the humanitarian issue here because there is a humanitarian issue of Palestinians, of refugees, of people suffering, and that's not what I'm addressing tonight. That's an independent issue. What I'm addressing tonight is the Jewish claim. The Jewish claim. And there's no question it's an issue that has to be discussed. But that's not my purpose here tonight. Not, not the, I'm not talking about that issue. I'm talking about the Jewish claim to Israel, Jewish connection to Israel, centrality of Israel and Jewish thought. What about that claim? Let me give you an analogy. Supposing the Becher family owns a nice house in Brooklyn. It's terrific. Anyway, but like, we own some, some nice house in Brooklyn. Anyway, we've lived in this house for years. And Don Corleone, the godfather, the Sundek, right? For some reason, in Israel, moving titles in Israel are interesting because the Godfather is translated in Hebrew as the Sundek. Now, the Sundek is the man that holds the child during the Bris Miller. So that's the closest Hebrew word to Godfather. So you go, it's like it's a weird, you know, but you look at this movie, I'm looking at the movie and it says, Sundek. Yeah, it's type of weird. Superwoman. Wonder Woman, there was a movie called Wonder Woman. Anyone heard of that movie? You know what it was called in Hebrew? Eshet Chayil. <laughs> Woman of Valor, which is, of course, from the book of Proverbs. <laughs> I was watching a Marx Brothers movie in Israel a long time ago, and it had subtitles. So, Groucho, not, not Carl, the other, the other Marx. Anyway, so, so Groucho was trying to teach Harpo how to say surprise. So he's got a bowl of soup and a bowl of rice. He's saying soup, rice, soup, rice, soup, rice, soup, rice, surprise! <laughs> of course, the Hebrew subtitles are Marak Orez, Marak Orez, Marak Orez, Haftaah. <laughs> <laughs> so in Hebrew, it doesn't work so well. Anyway. <laughs> but imagine, so I'm, I'm in this house, and Don Corleone, the Sunday, drives by, and he stops Luca Brazzi, his driver, I think it was Luca... Luca Brasi, yeah? So he tells, Luca, stop the car. So Luca says, I like that house. Luca says, you want me to make him an offer? He says, yeah, go ahead. 
So Luca Bracci comes into the customer house. He says, the Don wants to buy the house. I said, not for sale. He says, <laughs> I was talking about Don Corleone. I said, oh. And he says, uh, we're willing to offer you 25 bucks or whatever it is, right? He throws me out of the house and my family. And the Corleone takes over the house. I try to come back to the house, get beaten up. Family tries to take the house, we get beaten up. So we get a house somewhere else in a distant neighborhood, out of suburb. Right? And I tell the kids, that's our house. Every day I want you to stand three times a day. I want you to face our house in Brooklyn. And I want, to, I want you to say, please God, give us our house back. And then I said to the kids, and here is this little box. We'll paint it blue for some reason. Right? And I want you to put money in. That's going to be our legal defense fund for actually getting the house back. And eventually we go to the police and the police say, the police are totally corrupt. They've been bribed by the mafia. They say, oh, go jump in the lake, idiot. Right? So I go to the court system. The judge tells me, look, you like living? Yeah, forget your house. Forget your house. And there are places where judges will tell you that. Right? And then I go to the government. The federal government says, oh, we're working on a different case. Leave us alone. And you know what? What am I going to do? And so we drive by the house to look at it every now and again. And occasionally some hothead from my family tries to get into the house and gets hurt. We <coughs> can't get to the house. We haven't given up hope, though. We have not given up hope. And eventually, the Corleones become a respectable family. No one knows they're from the mafia anymore. And they've lived there for generations. And there are these nutcases called the Beckers <coughs> who are trying to get into the Corleones' house. The Corleones get a restraining order. Right, we're not allowed to go within 30 feet of the house. Two blocks of the house, sorry, you can't go within. No better can go within two blocks of the house. We're <laughs> pillars of the community. Right, how dare you, in that case, better. Now, there's a rule which is the following. And this is true, I know it's true in British common law. I don't know if it's true in American law, probably. There's an idea that if you relinquish your title to something, you can actually, there's a way of de facto relinquishing your title. Someone encroaches on your land, you don't say a darn thing for 20 years, there's. If you give up hope, if you give up hope of ever getting something back, you, you, it's, a, it's a de facto relinquishment of title. In Hebrew, it's called yush. It's like if I drop my pen in, ta- in Grand Central Station at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday, <coughs> what are my chances of getting it back? Zero. Now, if I drop that pen, have I given up hope? Most likely. I mean, most normal people would give up hope of finding that pen. Give it up. End of story. The Jewish people never gave up hope of getting Israel back. Never. We've always expected to return. We've always prayed for return there. We've always directed our prayers there. We've tried to go there throughout history. Always been people trying to go to Israel. Always. Right, the students of the Garden of Vilna were sent to Israel. The students of the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, he sent to Hebron. Students of the Garden of Vilna went to Tzfat. 300 authors of Tosafot, great commentary on the Talmud, in the 13th century went to Israel. Rebuda Levi, author of the Kuzari, went to Israel, was killed at the gates of Jerusalem. Nachmanides, when he left Spain, Portugal, came to Israel, re-established a community in Jerusalem, built the Nachmanides Synagogue, which was destroyed by the Jordanians in 1948. And there was continuous... We never gave up hope. And there was continuous settlement. There was someone hiding in the basement of my house. 
Right? Maybe it was in the basement, maybe it was in the closet, but there were always Jews there. There was always a presence there. In addition, the promises of return, we had a confidence and the knowledge that would eventually return. Not only did we not give up hope, but we actually knew deep down that we'd go back. For example, in 1950s, early 1950s, Israel brought the majority of Yemenite Jews, I don't mean right-handed Jews, the majority of Yemenite Jews, they brought them to Israel from Yemen. And what was interesting was, the reaction of many of the Yemenite Jews was, well, it's about time. We've been waiting 3,000 years. And, you know, an advisor to David Ben-Gurion said to him, this, he says, is an amazing fulfillment of the prophecies of Theodore Herzl and Max Nordau, great Zionist ideologues. And David Ben-Gurion corrected him and he said, no, it's not. He said, none of the Yemenite Jews have heard of a Theodore Herzl. They have not heard of Max Nordau. It is the fulfillment of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, who said it a long time before Theodore Herzl. And he says that's what it's the fulfillment of, because they expected at some point to come back. It was part of it. And there were no contrary homeland claims for the vast majority of history. Think about it. What would be a logical place for the center of Christendom to be? What would you expect to be the logical place for a pope to have the seat of the center of Christianity? What could be a more logical place than the land where Jesus supposedly lived, where his disciples supposedly lived, where they supposedly had all these prophecies, where, where, where the Bible was written, the whole works, what would be a better place? Did any pope ever choose to move the seat, the throne of St. Of Peter, did they ever choose to move it to Jerusalem? No. Any of the empires that conquered Israel, and Israel was conquered by everyone. Name an empire Israel, that was conquered by Israel. The Ottoman Turks, and the British, and the Mongols, and the Saracens, and the Crusaders, and, and Napoleon tried to conquer, everyone tried to conquer Israel. It's not like, it's like Woody Allen. Tells me, he, he says his parents who were intermarried, one was an atheist, one was an agnostic. They used to always argue about which religion not to bring him up in. <laughs> they sent him in summer to interfaith camp. He says there he was beaten equally by people of all races and creeds. Israel was indeed invaded equally by people of all races and creeds. But none of them made Israel their capital. They never moved the seat of their throne to Israel. Never. They always recognized that, yeah, it was now our control, but... It's, the Jew, it's, it's, it's not our land. Never looked at it. Palestine. Where did the name Palestine come from? It's the Latinized version of the word Philistine. The Philistines lived in Israel in biblical times. There was no Palestinian nation. It was a Philistine. In fact, anyone heard of the newspaper called the Jerusalem Post? You heard of it? Do you know what it was called before 1948? The Palestine Post. And yesterday, in the Tower of London, I saw the Royal Fusiliers Museum refers to the Jews who volunteered for the British Army in the First and Second World War. Jews from Israel who volunteered for the British Army in the First and Second World War. One of the names was called the Zion Corps. The other was the Palestinian Corps. So who were the Palestinians? We were. And there's a Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud. Scholars used to call the Jerusalem Talmud the Palestinian Talmud. Can you imagine sitting in the yeshiva today 
When someone comes up to you and say, what are you studying? The Palestinian Talmud. <laughs> they throw you out. But that's what it was, this Jewish. The Arabic name for Jerusalem. And what's the Arabic name for Jerusalem? What do they call it today? Anyone know? Al-Quds. Ever heard that term? They don't want to call it Jerusalem. That's too Jewish. They call it Al-Quds. You know what Al-Quds is a shortening of? Beit Al-Quds. Which is a translation of the Hebrew Beit Hamigdash. Beit Hamigdash means the Holy Temple. In other words, the Arabic name for Jerusalem, which they use, because they don't want to use the Jewish name for Jerusalem, is an Arabic translation of the Hebrew Holy Temple referring to the Jewish Temple. That's a little ironic, isn't it? What they're saying in England, that's bloody ironic, right? So that is what they're doing there. You know, so that's number one. That's we say no contrary homeland claims. In fact, it was always understood. It was only in this century. In fact, only in the past five, six years was Jerusalem suddenly became the central feature of the Palestinians. For centuries, they didn't give a hoot about it. It's not mentioned once in the entire Quran. Not once does it say the word Jerusalem anywhere in the entire Quran. Not once. How many times is it mentioned in the Torah, Prophets and Writings? Jerusalem and Zion, 723, according to my CD, wrong. I think there's an argument between Microsoft and Apple in this. But again, about 723 times. Okay, we are talking about something. So this, of course, leads me to my next point, which is the media always talks about a land holy to three faiths. You've heard that expression? A land holy to three faiths. And there is some truth to it, but there's a lie in it as well. The truth is, Israel is indeed a holy land for Christians, no question about it. And indeed, it's a holy land for the Muslims, no question about it. But, when you say a land holy to free faith, what does the implication, what does what it imply there? It implies that there's an equal degree of holiness. Not, not at all. In fact, you cannot be a good Muslim if you've never been to Mecca. It's one of the five pillars of Islam to become a Hajj, to go to Mecca. If you never set foot in Israel, you can be a very good Muslim. Total. No problem. Christianity, there is no mitzvah to go to Israel. It's a great thing. They like doing it. Right? They want to see the place where the, you know, the, you know they, they want to see Via Dolorosa, etc. But there's no obligation to go. It's not the same in Judaism. No one is as connected. No one is as tied to Israel. No one has the same depth of sentiment and emotion for Israel as the Jewish people. No one. It doesn't exist. So it is a land holy to free faith, but to say that statement is giving credit, credence to a lie, that it's equal in all of those three religions, and it's not. And finally, historically, there has been historic international recognition of Israel. It's an amazing thing how quickly history changes. You know, Hanukkah time, I saw in the Jerusalem Post on the front page that a picture of Vladimir Putin, President of the Russian Federation, lighting the Hanukkah candles in the Moscow synagogue. Now, if you would tell a Jew from Russia 10, 15 years ago, tell them 15 years ago, guess what? I predict, I have a vision. I had a dream. Then in 15 years, 
The president of Russia will light Hanukkah candles in the Moscow synagogue. <laughs> There'd be an hysterical laughter. They'd be absolutely wacko. Totally wacko. Well, let me tell you something interesting. In 1948, at the United Nations, a person stood up when they were voting to partition Palestine and create a Jewish state. A person stood up and he said the following. Given the connection of the Jews to Israel religiously, given the deep connection of the Jews to Israel historically, given the suffering of the Jewish people in recent years, given their desire to go to Israel, the Soviet Union hereby supports the establishment of the Jewish state in Israel. That was Kosygin. The Soviet ambassador to the United Nations said that. Napoleon, this is in the book by Franz Kohler called Napoleon and the Jews. Napoleon Bonaparte wrote in April 20th, 1799, he thought he was, he was going, trying to conquer Israel. He was repelled at Akko Acre Fortress, a place where Menachem Begin was imprisoned by the British and escaped. He said the following. I'm not going to quote the whole thing, but he wrote in his letter, Bonaparte, commander-in-chief of the armies of the French Republic in Africa and Asia. He says, to the rightful heirs of Palestine, Israelites, unique nation, whom in thousands of years, lust of conquest and tyranny deprived you of the ancestral land, but not of name and national existence. He says, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. Arise then with gladness, ye exiles, a war unexampled in the annals of history, waged in self-defense by a nation whose hereditary lands were regarded by your enemies as plunder to be divided. He says, we will avenge your shame and the shame of the remotest nations, long forgotten under the yoke of slavery, almost 2,000-year-old ignominy put upon you. The undefiled army with which Providence has sent hither led by justice and accompanied by victory, has made Jerusalem my headquarters and will within a few days transfer them to Damascus. Rightful heirs of Palestine, arise. Show that the once overwhelming might of your oppressors has not repressed the courage of the descendants of those heroes whose brotherly alliance gives honor to Sparta and Rome. Hasten, now is the moment, which may not return for thousands of years, to claim the restoration of your rights amongst the population of the universe, which has been shamefully withheld from you for thousands of years. Your political existence as a nation among nations and the unlimited natural right to worship God in accordance with your faith publicly and in likelihood forever. This is what Napoleon wrote. This is a sentiment echoed by many who came to Israel. When Lord Balfour, Foreign Secretary of the British Government, when the British government, when England captured Israel from the Turks, actually he wrote it before they captured Israel from the Turks, he wrote and he had a beautiful and impassioned speech to Parliament, where we were on Tuesday. But he, he wrote in a speech he gave in Parliament from the Penguin Book of Great Speeches of the 20th Century, highly recommended reading. Right, And he has this beautiful speech, which he basically says the same as the... I don't know if he was aware Napoleon said it, but he says the same thing. He says the British government, oldest democracy on earth, is con going to conquer Palestine, and he says, and it is obvious to everyone here in this house that this is the place of the Jews. That is the situation. So the connection of the Jews to Israel is intrinsic, 
It is part and parcel of the Torah. Cannot be, you cannot separate it without killing it. It's something like the heartland of the Jewish people. You cannot take the heart out of something without that thing dying. You cannot take Israel out of Judaism, and you cannot take Israel out of the Jews. We are connected. We're connected. Intrinsically entwined with the land of Israel. Spiritually, historically, legally, through divine providence, through settlement, through connection, through prayer, through every possible way, through, through international recognition, through the standards of international law, and through our history and through our destiny. That's basically our understanding of Israel. And we have to understand that the deeper our connection and our support and our intensity to the land of Israel, then the more strength that we have. As the capitalists say, external conflict is a reflection of what goes on inside. If we as Jews, and unfortunately there are many Jews who are not convinced of this, there are many Jews who don't feel this attachment. If we as Jews are weak inside with our attachment to Israel, then that encourages and causes threats from outside. So the first thing that we can do personally is that we can reinforce our connection to Israel in every possible way by visiting Israel, by praying for Israel, by doing everything we can in that way. And hopefully through that, we'll merit peace, security, and redemption very, very speedily. Thank you very much. And uh, I'll be happy to take any questions if there are. Yes. I have a problem with your historical context, okay, or spiritual context of Israel. But I have a problem with the value. You, you made a statement before which bothered me a little, okay? The Jewish values to the world are through Israel. You made a statement about it. I said that they are best shown to the world through, through the state of Israel. And there, I have a problem with that, okay, and I'll tell you why. There's um, a Jew living in America, not in Israel, okay? I feel uh, very much committed to the Ten Commandments, okay? which is the really revelation. That's the truth. That's the ultimate truth to me. And, and the Ten Commandments were given to the Jewish people to give to the whole world. They're not the 613 of the Ten Commandments. No. And as you know, during the Temple time, they were part of the Shema prayers. And later they were removed by the rabbis. Okay, well, let, let me correct the misconceptions here. Okay. But, they were part, but the Ten Commandments were part of the Shema prayer in the temple time. Okay. So, so my, my problem is that... The, well, what, what's the question? The right. question is the following. Yeah. That when you said the Jewish values to the world are through Israel, if you look at the Ten Commandments, but to me that's the value, okay, to the world. Ten Commandments. No, I think you misunderstood what I was saying. Okay, well... And, and okay. I feel that the way... If we could have a question of culture of speech, it would be better. The way Israel okay. is living there, the Arabs today, okay, is not based on Ten Commandments. So therefore, it's... Okay, true. well... I understand your question. Okay. But I think you have a mis misunderstanding of what I've said. But I did not say that the value we're trying to give to the world is Israel. Uh, what I said rather was the following. And please listen carefully. Okay. Please listen carefully. Please listen carefully. Thank you. Right. Is the following. Is that in order for us to show the world Jewish values in action, which is not just the Ten Commandments, it's 613, right, in order for us to show the Jewish world, the world as a whole, Jewish values in action requires that they be integrated into every aspect of life. For that, the ideal methodology for doing that is to have a society which is built upon Jewish values. 
as opposed to having a small minority of Jews in an overwhelmingly Christian society struggling to teach Judaism, which we do anyway, right? Rather, have an entire society which in every single particular minute detail exemplifies Jewish values. That's number one. That's what I meant, and that's what I said. Number two, the fact that the, uh, the Shema is not a prayer, it's a declaration of belief, by the way. Right? Number one. Right? In addition to that, in addition to that, in addition to that, the fact that the Ten Commandments were taken out, right, was put there by the rabbis in the first place. The reason they took it out was because people mistakenly thought that the Ten Commandments is all there is. And that's why they took it out, because they did not want people to make the mistake that that's it. Ten Commandments. There are not Ten Commandments, there are 613. The special status of the Ten Commandments, according to Nachmanides, Rav Sa'adjigon, Rav Yosef Elbo, and virtually all Jewish philosophers have ever lived, is that they encapsulate within them all 613. But they are not separate and distinct as being the only things we're obligated in. There's a whole range of commandments, not just the Ten. So anyway, but the ideal of the state of Israel, and of course, I don't mean that you cannot keep the commandments outside of Israel, although most of them you cannot, right? What I mean is that the ideal method for us to bring Judaism into the world is through a society living according to Jewish values. That's the ideal. Right? Yeah? What I think that is, I think there are a few reasons. First of all, uh, in ancient times, the trade route going from Middle East to Africa and, and, and Asia to Africa crossed through Israel. Right? Now, if you look, if you draw a map, you see that Israel is very much in the middle. You've got Europe, Asia Minor, Asia, Africa. Right in the middle of them, Israel. That's number one. Okay? Trade route. Right? Military route. Right? And I think there's a second reason. I think people recognize that it's Eretz Chemda, that there's a precious land. There is something which is not definable. There is some spiritual quality to it which, which people have recognized, not just Jews, but many people have recognized there's some special quality to this land. And because they've recognized that quality, there's also been an impetus to have the jewel, right, not the jewel of the Nile, but the jewel of the Jordan, right, to have that land of Israel, right? So I think it's a really, it's a combination of both, right, of the, of the geographic location and also of the spiritual quality. Oh, you want the reference? It's, uh, it's, it's in a book called Napoleon and the Jews by Franz Kobler, K-O-B-L-E-R, by Schocken Books, New York, 1976. It's difficult to say definitely that it refers to Napoleon. It is possible, but well, it, it, see, what seems so and what is so are two different things. Right? Uh, uh, Daniel is a very obscure book. First of all, you are quoting from the English. It's originally written in Aramaic. The Aramaic itself is extremely difficult to translate. Most translations are uh, fall very far short of being accurate. But it's possible that it refers to him. I don't know. Right? Possible. It's very hard to prove such a thing. He doesn't mention Napoleon by name. 
right? And there have been other people who have tried to do the same thing. So it's not it's not clear cut, but it's possible. Right. We believe everything ultimately was predicted in the Torah. Right? The question is how to find it. Yeah. As a rule, I don't try to explain other rabbis' statements. <laughs> a, I don't necessarily know what they said. B, I don't necessarily agree with what they said. So, therefore, but what I'm going to, what, what I was saying was, uh, based on the, uh, Rabbi Huda Halevi, who was a Jewish philosopher of the 13th century in Spain, who wrote a very famous book called the Kuzari, and he also was responsible for writing something like 80 different poems called Shirei Sion, Songs of Zion. He's a very famous Jewish poet and philosopher. And he writes that really the ideal of, uh, the ideal of Torah is that it's going to have the, the infrastructure of a state. Which is what I was trying to explain before. Rosanna Raphael Hirsch says this as well. Also, uh, also a very famous Hasidic rebbe, the Shemesh Shmuel, says a similar idea. Right? And they all say the concept that the, the Judaism existed in the desert, 40 years in the desert, right? But the 40 years in the desert, the Jews were in a bubble. You know what I mean? They got the clouds around them. They're not. They have no agriculture. There's no economy. There's no politics. Their hands are clean, right? So to keep Torah in such a situation is not going to teach anyone anything. Right? That's on the one hand. Also, who do people want to, who do people want to emulate? So they want to emulate a poverty-stricken, downtrodden exile who is righteous? Or will they want to imitate a successful person who is righteous? So if we're successful in every area and we show how Judaism Right, that, 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 that it can be successful, you can be a scientist and, and, and have all the Jewish values. You can be in the army and have Jewish values. You can follow, your, your farm can be farmed according to Jewish values. Okay, that is what we need. So of course it doesn't say anywhere explicitly in the Torah, you've got to have a state. But the gist of these ideas is that you're going to have an infrastructure, the Torah legislates, there's going to be a legislative body called the Sanhedrin. There's going to be a king. Right, that's the state. I mean, you can, you know, I don't know if you want to call it something else, the state. That's what the Torah legislates.